everybody. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Lights Out Podcast. I'm your host, Josh, and as always, I'm joined in studio by my brother and producer, Joel. And today, we are going to be diving into Carl Drew and the Fall River Cult. Now, I'm sure many of you have never even heard of Carl Drew before. Well, get ready. Carl Drew is a very, very brutal individual, and his cult is as well. And after we did the Pazuzu Algarod episode, it really seemed like you guys were super interested in that case and that story. And so I thought, hmm, maybe I'll go and try to find some other cases out there that are similar to it. Um, but obviously, this is still very different from Pazuzu. But similarly to Pazuzu, Carl Drew in the Fall River Cult also deals with Satanism as well as Satanic ritual abuse. But before we get into today's episode, I wanted to update you guys on a few things. One, I know I keep saying this every week, but merch is right around the corner. It is in production right now, and it should be live on our new site, milehiremerch.com. Within the next week or two, I'll make an official announcement when it actually goes live, but it is coming in the next week or two. Also, if you haven't left a review for the show, it'd be really awesome if you did. It definitely helps us out as well as if you watch on YouTube, if you can not only subscribe on YouTube, but then go to iTunes and subscribe and then go to Spotify and hit follow for lights out. That also does help us because unfortunately in the podcast world right now, YouTube literally doesn't matter. Um, They don't consider it in your official metric. So in order for your listen or view to matter, it would really help us out if you go subscribe to us over on Spotify and iTunes. So just wanted to throw that out there. And also this episode of Lights Out Podcast is brought to you by Every Plate, the number one meal service in America. Get you some good food. But I am ready to jump into this very, very dark episode. This is a especially disturbing one for you. And I've got my incense burning. I've got my salt lamp. I got all my uh, as much Zen going on as I can because this one is an absolutely insane case. So here we go. So the Fall River Colt murders took place from October of 1979 to February of 1980. During this short span of time, three women would be brutally, savagely murdered. And this particular case was especially hard to research because you're kind of putting pieces together from different things from different people that was mostly said during their trial about what actually happened. So the version of events I'm going to tell you about today come directly from what was said during the trials of Carl Drew, Andre Malte, and Robin Murphy in 1981. The Fall River Cult was in the public spotlight in the 1980s during the height of the satanic panic. And in simple terms, this was a time when Christian fundamentalists believed that Satanism, devil worship, and ritualistic human sacrifice were the greatest threats to society. And, of course, as always, the media fed right into this narrative and really stoked the flames of fear and anxiety into the public, which is kind of interesting because I feel like a lot of people refer to, you know, this as a specific time period, like the 1980s was the satanic panic era. But really, I feel like this has continued even into today. I mean, there's a lot going on in the world and there's a lot of different things that select groups of people believe there is still very much a satanic presence or groups that are operating, you know, underground doing a lot of illegal shit and are a lot of really horrific things. 
And if you've been on social media at all, Twitter especially, or Facebook, you've definitely probably come across an article or tabloid that has talked about how there is devil-worshipping cults running secret underground operations of human trafficking, kidnapping, child abuse, rape, animal sacrifice, human sacrifice, and even cannibalism. But this was especially rampant back in the 1980s, hence why we call it the satanic panic of the 80s. And so, you know, this was really thrust into the mainstream media at the time, as opposed to today, not so much. It's definitely more of a, you know, social media type of thing if you're looking for information about this. But back in the day, really, this was the number one threat to society. There were also psychiatrists and so-called occult criminal experts who verified these claims whenever they would find a crime that had been committed was somehow connected to satanic ritual abuse. And so eventually anyone was susceptible to being caught up in the rumors and exaggerations. People were often falsely accused of these crimes and many lost everything because of it. Because if there was any inkling that this could be somehow connected to a satanic cult or some type of ritual, then you are instantly sort of thrust into the flames per se. And you would be grouped into all of these devil worshipers that the public was afraid of. Not everyone though, who was accused was innocent. And that is the case of Carl drew in the late 1970s and early 1980s. The people of fall river, Massachusetts experienced a severe economic downturn. Unemployment numbers and crime rates soared. Many young people turned to drugs and made money in the only recession-proof industry, the sex industry, because who doesn't want to have sex? I mean, we're all human, and that is one of the industries that always will survive because there's always going to be this need for sex workers and you know all that kind of good stuff. So that is where a lot of people turn to when times got tough. But unfortunately, this turn led to the formation of the fall river cult. The fall river cult was a group of mostly young people in their teens to mid twenties who all got together to perform some satanic rituals. And you got to remember too, that around this time, we're also talking about the time, you know, a little bit before this, we've got Anton LaVey and the church of Satan. And obviously Anton LaVey actually released a book called satanic rituals and you know this kind of fed into that that panic that the public was experiencing like there was this takeover of evil people that believed in the devil and and satan and followed him and just to be clear when i talk about this stuff and just so you know if it makes you feel better i am not a satanist and just because i look at everything with an open mind does not make me somehow you know one of them and if there's any religion that i subscribe to it is the religion of free thought and open-minded thinking. That's, I don't believe in any religion. So I come at this with a very unbiased look. And again, when we're talking about Satanism, there's a lot of people that are Satanist that are good people that literally just follow it because that's, that's what they are into and that's what they believe. And it's very misunderstood the actual religion of Satanism. But then there's other people out there that just like in any religion, take it to the extreme And that's what we're going to be talking about today is devil worshiping evil people that believe that they need to do the devil's work. And obviously the devil's work is not good at all. So that is what we're dealing with. 
So the Fall River cult really wasn't just this, you know, group of people that worshiped the devil, that did rituals, and and that was it. They were a full-blown underground sex trafficking ring operating out of Bedford Street in Fall River, Massachusetts. And men and women served as pimps to young sex workers. And some of the cult members were underage runaways who had nowhere else to turn to. And one prominent member of the group was named Carl Drew. Carl was in his mid-20s and he was a crucial player in the Fall River cult. He would organize the gatherings and he would lead rituals based on his own interpretations of Satanism. There you go. Carl took his own take on it. And this is what we got. The rituals involved chanting, praying, speaking in a strange language. As you can probably imagine, they're probably saying some really weird shit. Speaking in tongues, uh, which is uh, definitely weird to hear. But most of all, physical and sexual abuse was extremely prominent within the cult. Carl even called himself son of Satan. And he claimed that he basically had the direct main line to the devil and he could speak with him and, you know, they were best buddies. So that was, uh, that was kind of how he asserted himself as a power figure within the group. And not only that, when they would do their rituals, he would actually use a human skull and fresh human blood, uh, which is uh, pretty common for these types of rituals. He was also known around town as a violent pimp who would manipulate young women into becoming sex workers. And then when they tried to leave, he'd threaten them with violence if they wanted to get out. Carl had been raised on a small farm in New Hampshire and was physically abused by his alcoholic father. This is a fucking crazy story and definitely is going to fuck him up. But one time his father used a rope to lower young Carl into a well full of dead rats. Imagine that that would fucking be disgusting and horrifying. And he told Carl that once he got to the bottom, that he was to grab onto a cluster of rats and hold on to them as he lifted him out of the well. Sound like fun? Yeah. What is this? Like it's a human claw machine with dead rats. Like who the fuck thinks of stuff like that? Why? <laughs> what are you trying to do to your son? Are you trying <laughs> to fuck your son up? Like right? that's, that's the fastest way to do it. So obviously disturbing experience is probably going to be traumatic on him. Uh, definitely leave a bad taste in his mouth about his father. That's for sure. And, you know, around death at a very young age, this affected him so much that Carl actually left home, left his family behind when he was just 14 years old. He then settled in fall river and quickly became a significant player in the criminal underworld that operated there all the while working his way up to be a well-known pimp and satanic cult leader. The Fall River cult really was the embodiment and the real life manifestation of everything society and the public feared about Satanists during the satanic panic time period. But this is where things start to get really dark. On October 13th, 1979, the mutilated body of 17-year-old Doreen Levescu was discovered under the bleachers of Dimmon Vocational High School. 
Doreen was a foster child. And if you know anything about being a foster child, it's very, very difficult life. You're often bounced around between foster homes and oftentimes you can end up in really, really bad situations. And unfortunately that was the case with Doreen. She had actually run away from her current foster home and decided to join the fall river cult in order to just make money. I mean, that that's probably how they sucked these young women in as they said, Hey, you want to make money? You want to get out of your situation? Come join us and we'll help you get money, help you better your life, which clearly did not happen. And she was forced to be a sex worker. When they found her body, though, it was an absolutely brutal scene. Her hands were tied behind her back with a fishing line. Her head had been stabbed and bludgeoned multiple, multiple times. Doreen's skull was completely crushed. So probably a absolutely horrific, violent end to her life. I mean, just looking at the autopsy report photo. uh, Yeah, she literally got bludgeoned to death. The medical examiner also found evidence of severe sexual torture, which you can only imagine what that means. And when this happened, the town was extremely shocked by how gruesome this crime was. Investigators suspected one of Doreen's clients for the murder, as is often the case with sex workers. But the forensic evidence just didn't match up. The medical examiner reported that Doreen was likely killed by multiple people and had possibly even been stoned to death. Which if you've ever looked into somebody being stoned to death, that is an absolutely horrible way to die and that comes back way to the medieval times yeah you know and lots of people mentioned in the bible got stoned to death as well so totally a brutal way to go yeah i mean imagine being pummeled by stones and rocks and other hard blunt objects just repeatedly to the point where you're just your body's just literally being torn apart and you're just yeah you end up dying from your wounds that's just horrible so sad that she she went through this the medical examiner also noted that the torture that she had sustained pointed toward a ritualistic murder of some kind about a month after doreen's body was found a 44 year old man named andre malte filed a missing person report for his girlfriend who was a local sex worker named barbara raposa barbara was 22 years old and she was working the same area that doreen was Andre told police he believed Barbara was in danger and mentioned that she may have been involved in a satanic sex cult. The police questioned Andre further and looked into his background. And his background did not look good whatsoever. It turned out he had a reputation as a rapist, a pedophile, and a sexual sadist. But luckily, he had recently converted to Christianity. How convenient, right? And in his first interview with police, he held up a pocket Bible and said, Once I worshipped Satan, but now I worship Jesus. But through further questioning, he explained that him and Barbara had actually been members of a satanic cult and that Doreen Levesque was a member too. He also said that both women were sex workers when they disappeared. And he believed that the cult was to blame for their deaths. The police were stunned by the details and were hesitant to believe someone with a past like Andre's. So that's when Andre introduced them to two current cult members, 
17-year-old Robin Murphy and 20-year-old Karen Marsden. Robin was both tough and smart, and she was fighting for her place within the Colts' ranks. She wanted to be a pimp because she wanted to move away from servicing clients and instead move into a leadership role where she's actually operating the sex ring. Karen, on the other hand, was a runaway and a single mom. She was also addicted to drugs and turned to the cult and sex work to survive. Robin was very level-headed and confident in the presence of police while Karen was flustered and clearly upset. Robin and Karen were also roommates and they had an ongoing sexual relationship that they freely disclosed to the police. And during their interview with police, Robin didn't really talk too much. But she did tell police that she had known Andre Malte since she was a child and that he had been molesting her since she was around 11 years old. When Karen was questioned, though, she went on and on, getting more emotional the longer she talked. And after doing this big, long rant, she started sobbing uncontrollably and yelled out, Carl Drew killed Doreen Levesque. And the reason for saying this was because not only was Doreen a member of the Fall River cult, but Carl was her pimp. So he certainly had the opportunity to murder her, but the police had no hard evidence that he was involved yet. The police offered Karen witness protection, but she refused. However, she did tell police that if she ended up being murdered, they should blame Carl Drew. Investigators stayed in touch with her and continued looking into the Fall River cult and Carl Drew. Karen was absolutely terrified that Carl would find out that she was talking to the police because she knew he would certainly kill her. And she was torn between two worlds. As a Christian, she believed in God and eternal damnation. On the one hand, Carl threatened Karen with a torturous and violent death, followed by an eternity in hell. But on the other hand, Karen knew what was happening in the cult was wrong and that talking to the police was the right thing to do. She explained that Carl ran the cult like a coven, where the members were closely connected and insulated from the outside world, which a coven, I believe, don't quote me, but I believe it is a gathering of witches and you know people of the, of the like, and doesn't necessarily mean a, a negative thing, but it also is a term just how close one group of people can be. Carl Drew was the leader, and no one was allowed to question him. During one visit with police, Karen's friend Carol Fletcher came with her, Carol was also a young sex worker operating through the Fall River Colt. The women ended up taking the police actually down to the Freetown State Forest to show them where the Colt met for late night rituals. So this forest is about 6,000 acres of land with 50 miles of trails and unpaved roads, and it's a well-known spot for violent crimes and even ghost sightings. Many people even believe the land is cursed, and these rumors make it an ideal gathering place for a satanic cult. Deeper in the forest was a flat stone that served as their altar, and during rituals, the altar was lit by torches. Women were stripped naked and laid out on the stone slab, and animals were sacrificed, with their blood draining over the stone as an offering to Satan. Karen showed the police the marshy spot where Carl said he would dump her lifeless body after injecting her with battery acid. He told her if she talked to the police, he would offer her soul to Satan. And a part of Karen really believed he did have the power to do just that. Several more sex workers came forward to the police. They provided details about the devil-worshipping sex cult, including the rituals held in a housing project in Fall River 
as well as in the Freetown State Forest. One time, Carl told a young woman named Mildred Cookie Jukes. Wow, that's quite the name. (laughs) Cookie is the nickname that he planned to punish one of his sex workers for being arrested by tying her to a tree in the forest and pouring blood from a live goat all over her face. Oh, that's disgusting. I can't even imagine that. What the hell? It's pretty clear that Carl's really trying to instill fear in all these women to get them to do what he wants. He's coming up with the most horrific things he can think of that no one would want to go through as punishments for disobeying his demands. And it makes me think that Carl, you know, when these women first joined the cult, I wouldn't think he would disclose like all these punishments <laughs> and things that he would do to them, no way. to them, you know, no way. And that being said, like he was a good manipulator to bring them in, but then to keep his power and control over all these women and people like, using the worst possible punishments out there. Basically. Yeah. Not just, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to tie you to a tree, pour, kill a goat over your head and dump their blood all over you. Like what the, that would scare anybody. I think so. He definitely, as most cult leaders do, they instill this, you know, ruling via fear where, you know, you're just so scared of them that you're not going to cross them and you're just going to do whatever they tell you to do. Investigators ended up going to take a look in the forest and they eventually found a shack. This, this is almost sounding like straight out of a, a horror movie. In fact, I just saw a movie on Netflix. It's a Netflix original. I think it's called ritual something. And I, I think it might even just be ritual, but it's, it's the same type of premise where there's a satanic cult doing ritualistic shit in the middle of the forest. And these backpackers just like happen upon the shack that happens to be, you know, where they do a bunch of crazy shit. That's what this is reminding me of right now is, is that movie for some reason. So once they found the shack, they clearly knew that there was definitely some shit going on in the forest and they really needed to look into this more during the final few months of 1979. There was still no sign of Barbara Raposa. Her body wasn't found until January 26, 1980. She had actually been left in a wooded area behind an abandoned factory covered in blood and nearly frozen solid. Her wrists were tied with a fishing line and her skull was crushed, just like Doreen's. She also had been sexually tortured. As Barbara's missing person case became a murder investigation, the police brought Andre Malte back in for questioning. Andre seemed shocked to learn of Barbara's death, and he swore he had nothing to do with the murder. But just a couple days later, he went back to the police with important information. He said, hey guys, I had this psychic dream where I was hovering over Barbara's body and all of a sudden I realized exactly what had happened to her. And it was actually Andre that led police to the spot where her body was found and described in detail how she had been murdered as well as stating what time she was murdered as well as what position her body was on the ground. I don't know about you, but that is definitely suspicious. And I'm really questioning the fact that he had a psychic dream about this. Yeah, definitely. I feel like since he had all those details, 
he, he could have had to have been there the whole time. Red flag. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, how dumb are you? Like, that's the, he's literally saying like, basically I was there. Yeah. Without actually saying I was there. I had a psychic dream. And obviously the police were like, thanks dude. Like you just fucking told us exactly what we were wanting to know. So they arrested him and they charged him with the murder of Barbara Raposa. At that point, the police ended up bringing Karen back in for questioning. She was very clearly distraught and was just crying and sobbing tears everywhere. And the police were also convinced that she had actually witnessed at least one of the murders and that they were threatening her in order to keep her quiet. But when they brought her back in, instead of talking about the murders or Carl drew, she ended up talking more about her roommate, Robin Murphy. And through Karen, the investigators discovered that Robin was manipulative, driven, mentally unstable, and incredibly violent. She was actually introduced to the occult long before meeting Carl drew. And she was involved in the darkest rituals the Fall River cult conducted. After Andre was charged with murder, the police were surprised when Robin Murphy reached out to them and offered to help explain what had happened now that Andre was locked up. Because she was like, now it's safe. The guy who did it is locked up. And not only that, she claimed that she was witness to Doreen's murder and would help in the police's case against Andre. But in exchange, she wanted full immunity for both murders. Which, hmm, maybe we should think about that for a moment. But no, the police agreed, and she was placed in protective custody. She was eventually sent to Dallas, Texas to stay with a friend in order to be safe. Now, Robin's version of Barbara's murder was a gruesome, gruesome scene. She told the police that she was out driving with Andre and Barbara when they started fighting. Andre stopped at the abandoned factory and pulled Barbara out of the car. Robin said that she stayed inside and watched Andre violently rape Barbara as she screamed. She then watched him beat her and then bash her over the head repeatedly with a rock. He then returned to the car and drove away with Robin, telling her that he had left his girlfriend behind to crawl away on her own. Then he told Robin if she told anyone, he would do the exact same thing to her. Which is crazy that Robin agreed with the police to testify on Andre's behalf on what happened because even though Andre is locked up in prison or jail, it's as easy as him picking up the phone or sending a letter to somebody on the outside to be like, hey, you know, Robin's a target, take, you know, take her out. So she's not safe being in protective custody. She's still a huge target. Yeah, I mean, just because you leave town doesn't mean you're safe by any means. So now that the police seemingly had the killer of Barbara behind bars, they still did not know who the killer was of Doreen. And they hoped that Robin's information would help them lead to an arrest. At first, Robin named two random men who she claimed murdered Doreen. And the police went out and apprehended these men. But soon after, Robin admitted that she had lied and didn't even know who the men were. And without any other evidence... The two men were released because they were probably like, what the hell? Why, why are you putting me in the middle of this? Then Robin claimed it was Carl Drew and that he had sacrificed Doreen to Satan as a punishment for leaving the cult. Robin then went on to say what happened to Doreen. She said after Doreen left the cult, Carl tracked her down. He brought Karen Robin and a friend of his named Willie Smith 
to a Bedford Street bar that he heard she hung around. That's where Carl found Doreen there, and he ended up dragging her into the car. When she protested, he backhanded her in the face and told her she couldn't afford to work the streets alone. Carl then drove to Dimmon Vocational High School, where him and Willie pulled Doreen from the car. Robin said that her and Karen stayed in the car while the men brought Doreen under the bleachers where the women couldn't see what was happening. Robin said it was silent until the men returned several minutes later. She asked what had happened to Doreen and Carl said, you don't want to know. Karen and Robin didn't think they had actually killed Doreen, which I'm like, really? You didn't think Carl Drew, crazy Carl, wasn't going to kill Doreen? That's hard to believe. But a few days later, she's claimed she found out that Doreen had died when she read in the papers about Doreen's body being discovered. And when Doreen's body was found, it was immediately clear that she had been sadistically tortured before she was killed. There was obvious evidence of rape and blood everywhere. It didn't seem possible that Karen and Robin wouldn't have heard anything, right? Like, come on. If somebody's being brutally bludgeoned to death, there's going to be screaming. There's going to be noise. Also, you got to think that after Carl and Willie killed Doreen, they would have been absolutely covered in blood everywhere. So there probably would have been blood on Robin as well, especially if she had actually been there or assisted in the murder itself. So to, to come across as like this innocent victim, like, oh, I didn't know what they were doing, you know, to police was just very unbelievable. Let's just say that. And every time Robin talked to the police, she would add more details about Doreen's death until it more closely matched the crime scene. Imagine that. But her continually changing story made the police very uneasy about her credibility as a witness. As the police stayed in close contact with Karen, she also told a different story. Karen said that Robin was directly involved in Barbara and Doreen's murders and that she actually forced witnesses to help mutilate the women's bodies. Investigators believe this was a tactic to make sure no one talked to the police since they were directly linked to the murders. But the police still had no hard evidence for Karen's claims. And as a drug addict who refused to testify, Karen's version was at all useful to the investigation. And during Karen's final interview with police, she broke down sobbing. She told them that she knew she was going to be next, that they were going to come after her. And she believed she was going to be murdered as a sacrifice by the cult. The police, however, you know, they're like, okay, well, maybe, but they still weren't exactly believing everything she was saying. But they planned to interview her again in a few weeks. But unfortunately, they never got the chance. On February 8th, 1980, several cult members gathered late at night for a ritual near Westport, Massachusetts. The group included Carl Drew, Carl Davis, Carol Fletcher, and Robin Murphy. And everyone there knew the real intention of this ritual was going to be a human sacrifice. Karen was deathly afraid for her life, horrified by all the gruesome violence she had witnessed, and desperately wanted out of the cult and to get as far away from Carl Drew as she could. And unfortunately, Carl knew this. And as punishment for her betrayal and wanting to get out of the Fall River cult, Carl Drew decided that she would be their human sacrifice. 
And what happens next is just extremely violent and dark. During the ritual, Karen was tortured mercilessly. She was forcibly pulled from the car by her neck and by the hair, which actually ripped out of her skull. This one just ah sends shivers up and down my spine. Her fingernails were then torn off one by one. Oh, God. Seriously, that's, oh, I can't even, oh, I can't even imagine that. It's just so, so horrible. Being tortured to death is just the worst thing that could possibly happen to you. Carl Drew told Karen that she would suffer, and she told him God would help her. But at this point, everyone had gathered around for what they called a ritual stoning. Karen was wearing an expensive ring, and Carl wanted to ensure she felt as much pain as possible. So he chopped off her fingers, pulled off the ring, and gave it to Robin. Then he took a very large rock and bashed in Karen's head. Carl Drew then picked up her lifeless body and snapped her neck. He then pulled Robin close to him and whispered in her ear in the strange language he spoke during rituals. And that's when he ordered her to finish the job. Robin Murphy slashed Karen's throat and watched as she bled out. Carl Drew and Carl Davis then twisted Karen's head and pulled it until she was decapitated. She's so sick. The men then took turns kicking Karen's head around like it was a soccer ball. Carl Drew then carved the letter X on Karen's chest as a homage to Satan while speaking in his evil tongue. At that point, he offered her as a sacrifice to the devil. Carl then used Karen's blood to smear an X on Robin's forehead, which proceeded with him raping the headless corpse. And then he ordered Robin to perform oral sex on it. And once the ritual was complete, they dragged the body further into the woods, soaked it in gasoline and lit it on fire where they then all stood around and watched it burn. Karen was actually reported missing the very next day on February 9th, 1980, but she wouldn't be found for months later. On April 13th, when a man was clearing land near Devol Pond in Westport, when he discovered a piece of a human skull, which he immediately contacted the police. It was then that investigators discovered human skull fragments, ripped out clumps of hair, small pieces of cloth torn from a sweater, one high-heeled shoe, and jewelry in the woods around Family Beach in Westport. They also discovered the decomposing bodies of three cats and bones from a sheep. Investigators were able to compare the top half of the skull to an x-ray Karen had in 1978 for some sinus issues that she had. And that's how they actually determined that the bone belonged to her. But they were never able to find the rest of her remains. A half a mile from the crime scene, investigators found more of Karen's belongings, including a ring with a devil symbol on it. And as you can imagine, the officers that discovered all these things were very uncomfortable. Even the most seasoned law enforcement officers were very queasy when they came upon these remains. 
After this discovery was made public, witnesses started coming forward. Carol Fletcher, who had gone with Karen and the police to Freetown State Forest, told investigators that Karen was murdered by Carl Drew and Robin Murphy. She also said a man named Carl Davis was involved as well. Carl Davis, again, was a friend of Carl Drew's and a local pimp in the Fall River in Providence, Rhode Island area. Carol said she knew who was there because she drove them to the woods herself to perform the sacrifice. Another person that came forward was named Sunny Sparta, and she talked about the gatherings that took place in her home and how she acted as a sort of mentor or protector to young cult members. She said that her and Robin had been sexually involved in the past and that Robin had called her and actually confessed to her to killing Karen. She also talked about Barbara Raposa and Carl Drew and the gatherings they had in the Freetown State Forest, where they sacrificed stray cats and goats to Satan. The blood of the sacrificed animals was then always poured over the cult members' heads as a baptism. She also talked about the strange language that they spoke, or what they called speaking in tongues. She said, Satan appears in a form where we feel his presence, or he takes possession of one of us. You can tell when Satan is there. Some people even let him speak through them in his own language. It is in human speech, and there's no way anyone on earth could fake it. I don't know. I guess it depends on what you what you believe about that, but if that's real at all, that's fucking terrifying. At some point, investigators decided to send two undercover officers to the next gathering at Sunny's apartment. And they found some officers who would not be recognized, obviously the best undercover officers they could find. And so they went to the gathering. The undercover officers brought with them a couple six packs of beer and headed over to the apartment. Robin and Carl were there, along with a few other local people. It was led by a sex worker from Providence who had traveled to Fall River for the Black Mass. And during the ritual, everyone said together, We pray to Satan, we chant, we try to conjure him. Hail Satan, hail Satan. Because they really believed that Satan was there with them in the apartment. And luckily, Due to these witnesses coming forward after Karen's murder, it was enough information to actually bring in the suspects. At that particular time, Carl Drew and Carl Davis were both in county jail. They were both serving short sentences for assault, though, but that's when they were charged for Karen's murder. A warrant was also issued for Robin's arrest while she was still down in Dallas. She was taken into police custody and then extradited back to Massachusetts at that point. After Robin was brought in, she confessed that she helped with Karen's murder, but claimed that she had been forced to participate to prove she was loyal to the Fall River cult and to Carl Drew, who was the real murderer. She went on to say that Carl had suspected that Karen was talking to the police, and that's why he murdered her. She also said that she was a witness to Doreen's murder, And she was trying to leave the cult, which only gave him more reason to kill her. She also said that Carl Davis also helped with the murder. Robin agreed to testify against Carl Drew and Carl Davis in court. And during an interrogation with police, Carl Drew said, I worship Satan. I worship him like you worship God. He believed Satan was pure evil and that evil was power. 
And by worshiping Satan and sacrificing to him, Carl wanted to capture that power and use it to control people. What's kind of interesting to me, though, is that the types of rituals that were performed by the Fall River cult, not talking about the brutal murders of humans, but some of the other things like speaking in tongues, the sacrificing of animals, do have some similarities to different things that are in the Bible. I mean, we know that there's biblical figures that sacrificed animals to God. So, you know, that's not all that strange. There's definitely Christians who have done it as well, as well as the speaking in tongues. That's something that um, some Christians out there claim they can do. And, you know, they're both using this power that they're getting from God or Satan in order to help heal other people. And in this case, Carl Drew thought he was doing that by worshiping and sacrificing to Satan as opposed to worshiping God and sacrificing animals to God, which again, like we're talking long time ago for most Christians. I don't know really any Christians out there that are sacrificing animals for God, but that is in the Bible. Uh, It did happen in the past. Yeah. In the Bible before Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice, you know, in the old Testament, all of them did, do animal sacrifices. And I guess it was one of the big ways to have God forgive them for their sins. But again, it's also important to remember that Carl Drew specifically said that this was his own interpretation of Satanism. And, you know, not every Satanist out there is doing all the things that Carl Drew did by any means. And the same thing for Christians. On the other hand, it definitely seems like the Fall River cult got inspired from horror films and adopted a lot of rituals that literally started as rumors during the satanic panic period. For example, the cult believed they had to offer Satan a blood sacrifice approximately every 30 days on the night of a full moon, which was usually a animal sacrifice. And if the murders had in fact been a blood sacrifice, this fits the narrative the cult followed greatly. A psychologist named Gail Feldman, who studied ritualized abuse, explained torture is used to force the victim to a maximum state of emotional arousal, or it is believed that the greatest amount of life force is extracted at the moment of death. That's terrifying, but I guess that makes sense because when they're doing these human sacrifices, they wanted to get the maximum effect they could, you know, draw as much power as they could. Now, the trial of Andre Malte for Barbara Raposa's murder began in January of 1981, and Robin was the star witness for the prosecution. The district attorney had some conflicting feelings about this, though. He believed Robin may have been the ringleader behind the violent cult and not Carl Drew. In her testimony, Robin explained that she had a sexual relationship with Barbara Raposa and that Barbara was one of her sex workers. She also said that Barbara was murdered in November of 1979. And during the investigation and trials involving the Fall River cult, the media went wild. One of the headlines from an article written said, Prostitute, defendant called himself Satan, made threats. There was tons of headlines like this and other fear-mongering stories ran rampant. People were terrified and believed every rumor and exaggeration they read. Andre ended up being convicted of first-degree murder of Barbara Raposa in March of 1981. He was sentenced to life in prison with no possibility of parole. And he was also convicted almost solely on Robin's testimony, which is absolutely crazy. 
And because of the media coverage of the Fall River cult murders, the trials of Carl Drew, Carl Davis, and Robin Murphy had to be moved to Fitchburg, Massachusetts, over 80 miles from Fall River. That's how blown up this case got in the media. That it was very difficult for them to find jurors that didn't know about what was going on in town. And during Robin's trial, her attorney made the case that she had been brainwashed and manipulated by a dangerous sex cult. She ended up accepting a plea deal and pled guilty to second-degree murder for Karen Marsden's death. However, she maintained her immunity deal for the other two murders. But this didn't stop the courts from sentencing her to life in prison with the possibility of parole. What's crazy, though, is that there wasn't enough evidence to convict Carl Davis, and the case fell apart before a trial even began. But a year later, he was arrested for assault with a deadly weapon against Sonny Sparta. Sonny at the time was three months pregnant, and Carl beat her and stabbed her in the head. Carl Drew claimed that this attack happened because Sonny had information that would prove Robin and Carl Davis murdered Karen. He said this information would prove that he was innocent. Carl Davis was convicted of the assault charge against Sonny and served seven years. Willie Smith was implicated in Doreen's murder, but he never stood trial either. And like Carl Davis, the charges against him were eventually dropped. How crazy is that? Two of the people that participated in the murders weren't even charged. Carl Drew's trial began on March 2nd, 1981, and he was now 26 years old. The following day, he was also charged with Doreen Levesque's murder. He was represented by attorney John Berkness, and the prosecution was led by assistant district attorney David Waxler. And during the trial, multiple witnesses to the murders took the stand, including Robin Murphy. And in her testimony, Robin talked through the gory details of Karen's murder, and she added that Carl also killed Doreen Levesque in a similar ritual sacrifice. Robin said that the two girls' souls were offered up to Satan. The prosecution was really trying hard to prove that Carl Drew was the cult leader and sadistic murderer who was feared by everyone around him. Even an ex-girlfriend testified against Carl. Leah Johnson said he had killed a woman with help from Carl Davis, Robin Murphy, and another woman. He had told her about killing a girl while on drugs, and she claimed he gave her Karen's diamond ring even. It's just crazy. In Carl's trial, the jury deliberated for only three hours because I'm sure they're like, this guy's 100% guilty. And that's exactly what they found. He was found guilty of first-degree murder on March 13th and sentenced to life in prison. But it didn't end there for Carl. The following year, Carl ended up being charged with assault with a deadly weapon against another sex worker, which added 10 years to his sentence. Despite being found guilty for his crimes, Carl filed a direct appeal of the verdict and requested a new trial. The court reviewed the appeal, which involved taking a close look at the trial proceedings and the representation Carl received from his attorney. And they shot down his appeal. In 1984, Robin Murphy officially recanted her testimony against Carl Drew. And she even tried to get a new trial as well. But she was denied also. None of this stopped Carl Drew from continuing to fight for a new trial. And he ended up filing emotions in 1983 and 1992, but was denied. Andre Malte, however, died in prison in 1998. In Andre's last years, he was so severely mentally ill that he believed he was an agent for the police. In the spring of 2004, Robin Murphy testified at her parole hearing 
that she didn't remember the murder or talking to the police. She said she had no recollection of pleading guilty or testifying in court. She said, I believe Carl Drew was guilty of killing Karen and many, many other women in the area. I believed he belonged in jail, but also knew justice was not taking place. So I made the story up. She said she didn't witness Barbara's murder and that her testimony at Andre Malte's trial was also a lie. Robin had made up the story about Andre as revenge for him molesting her since she was a child. And crazy enough, the parole board believed her testimony. She was granted parole and released from prison on January 10th, 2004, after serving 24 years in prison. That is absolutely crazy. I mean, the fact that she lied about all that when she knew everything that she said prior was completely true. And I mean, it just shows that she was just only looking out for herself to, you know, get out of prison and stuff. But that's like the worst thing you can do is take back everything that you said about somebody who did these horrific crimes. It just doesn't make any sense to me. I think if anything, it just shows her true colors, you know, like she's only cares about herself in this life and she doesn't care who she has to, to lie about in order to make her situation better. And I just can't believe they believed her. Like they, they continued to sort of give her her way despite all the things that she had lied about. It's kind of crazy to me that they, they approved her parole. In 2005, Carl Drew and his lawyer, Michael Cutler, appealed for a new trial. Michael argued that Carl's previous attorney, John Burkus, failed to provide adequate representation for his client, making several careless mistakes that resulted in a guilty verdict. Michael also alleged that new eyewitness statements refuted those offered during the trial and that the police were involved in witness tampering. The case ended up being heard by Superior Court Judge John Connor Jr. in January 2005. A total of 24 witnesses were called over the 11-day hearing. Robin Murphy even testified at the hearing. She claimed that she had no memory of the day of the murders or of speaking to police between April 29th and May 1st, 1980. She also said she had no memory of testifying and that she had been pressured by the prosecution to testify against Carl. Robin also told Judge Connor that the prosecution had controlled her testimony and dictated the story she was to tell on the witness stand. However, Judge Connor was not fooled by any of this, and he denied Carl's request for a new trial. And much of the reason for this was based upon Robin's testimony. The judge didn't believe a word of it, because any smart human would have thought the same. This woman is a liar and manipulator. And even in his statement that he gave, the judge said that based on testimony from fellow sex workers and from investigators, Robin was clearly a smart woman, but she was also manipulative, controlling, and extremely violent. He believed everything she said was in her own self-interest, and it was in her best interest to deny any memory of the murders, cooperating with police and the trial, as she had done at her own parole hearing. Because she was like, yeah, it worked, so why don't I try to do it here as well? Judge Connor also said that Robin was careful in her testimony not to contradict the story she told the parole board, which resulted in her release. I find that her only interest at this hearing is in telling the story that will keep her on the street, and she did not let the truth stand in her way. Other witnesses also recanted their testimony from the trial, including Sonny Sparta, Leah Johnson, and Carol Fletcher. Carol Fletcher said she had been on drugs at the time and was pressured by police to tell the version of events they wanted to hear. Carol then claimed that Robin Murphy was the sole murderer of Karen Marsden. She said that Robin and Karen had got into a physical fight at the Harbor Terrace housing projects in Fall River. 
when Robin ripped out Karen's hair and pulled out a knife. At this point, Carol said she ran away, but believed Robin killed Karen, dismembered her, and scattered her body parts around the city. Sonny testified that during Carl's trial, she had been threatened by David Wexler, the assistant district attorney at the time. He told her that if she testified for the defendant, he would make sure she ended up behind bars. However, these claims were refuted by David Wexler, and several highly respected character witnesses were called to speak for those accused of misconduct, including David, other members of the district attorney's office, and the Massachusetts State Police, who were being accused of misconduct by Carl's attorney. Several of these character witnesses also spoke directly about David's reputation for being honest and trustworthy and always doing his job with the utmost integrity. But the judge did not believe Sonny Sparta, Leah Johnson, and Carol Fletcher were credible witnesses, and he found no evidence of mistakes or misconduct by Carl Drew's first attorney, John Burkus, while representing him at his first murder trial. Obviously, this was a huge blow to Carl Drew and his attorney, and they were very disappointed by the judge's decision. And his attorney even said he completely believes in Carl's innocence, which is honestly laughable. After the judge denied Carl of a new trial, that pretty much shut him down for good. What's crazy is that seven years after being released from prison, Robin Murphy got pulled over by a state trooper in 2011, and a passenger of hers that was with her happened to be a heroin addict and had possession of heroin, and therefore they were both arrested for it because it's a violation of her parole to be around that. And as a result, Robin was sent to a maximum security prison in Framingham, Massachusetts. She then served six years there and then sought parole again in 2017. And her argument for seeking parole is that she's a changed person and that anything that she would have done when she was 17 was the past and there's no way anything like that could ever happen again. And plus, she's still maintaining her innocence in all of this. And during this hearing, family and friends of the victims had to not only relive all of the horrors of the past, but they also begged for the parole board not to free her. So just to give you an idea of what Robin Murphy sounds like and give you a little bit more insight into this case, I'll go ahead and play a clip of the parole hearing. I'd like to begin by apologizing to Ms. Watson's family for putting them through this once again. I feel that I am a different person today, certainly than I was 17 at 17 years old. Honestly, I'm on the victim's family and friend side here because she's clearly a pathological liar. And despite saying that she changed and that she's been a, a role model in prison, she's completed all these programs in prison, that she's ready to be back out in society. I don't know if I trust her. I don't know if I trust her to, you know, not do something like this again or just break the law in, for that matter. And the fact that she said she's changed doesn't bring those victims back. So, I mean, at the end of the day, she should serve that punishment completely for what she's done. 100%. And somebody's got to, to do time for this because on the other hand, we've got Carl Drew over here who has said that he's innocent and he's maintained his innocence since he was initially arrested. He has said that he never took a deal because he believed the justice system would prove him innocent as long as he told the truth. According to him, Sonny Sparta, Leah Johnson, and Carol Fletcher were all threatened by the prosecution and told that if they said anything that might help Carl, that they would be thrown in jail. 
which may or may not be true. We don't know. Sonny had a two-year-old special needs daughter and no family or friends who could care for her if Sonny went to jail. So, of course, she's going to go along with the prosecution if that was the case. And at the trial, Sonny pled the fifth because she didn't want to lie. Leah had three cases pending against her, and the police threatened her with longer sentences and said they would take away her children. So there's incentive to testify against Carl there. Carol witnessed Robin Murphy killing Karen, and later Robin told her to blame Carl Drew and Carl Davis and say that Carl Drew forced her to slit Karen's throat. Carol ended up being too scared to testify and fled to Washington State, but the police ended up finding her and dragged her back to Massachusetts to testify. Carol was so scared that she actually tried to end her life by jumping out of a window. But again, she was forced to testify and repeated Robin's version of the murder. Afterward, apparently she tried to recant her testimony, but Carl Drew didn't learn about that until much later. Years later, Carl also learned that his first attorney, John Berkness, also never practiced criminal law before his case, and never did again. Which, obviously, anybody in that situation is going to say, hey, like, this is clearly not fair, and, you know, this is evidence that I need a new trial. To explain why Robin blamed him for the murders, he said he had once slapped her in the face, and that's when she decided he would take the fall for her. Carl has also claimed that Robin was the one that killed all three women, including decapitating Karen Marsden. For further proof, Carl pointed to Robin's testimony at her parole hearing and at his evidentiary hearing. During both testimonies, she said she never saw him commit murder, and she didn't actually remember any of the murders, the investigations, or her court testimonies. So in 2017, the parole board did not decide to free her, and she's now awaiting her next parole hearing, which comes in 2022, right? Right, and she has the opportunity to reapply for parole every five years with her life sentence. Okay, so luckily they did not fall for her a second time, and they've kept her behind bars because I believe that she is guilty of of these murders. I think she might even be the you know sort of ringleader here. Like, I think Carl Drew's definitely involved, and you know, definitely was there probably. And honestly, I think he probably participated in it, but ultimately maybe it was Robin who kind of headed up the whole cult itself. I mean, it seemed like she did have some power over him. But at the end of the day, I feel like Carl was the one who had all the power in that hierarchy because he made everyone else below him do all the dirty work for him. So, you know, obviously he would be kind of one of the last police's suspects, but you know, he did threaten Robin multiple times and everyone else that, Hey, if you don't do X, Y, and Z, you know, I'm literally going to torture and kill you. So, I mean, the fact that Robin did that was mainly because of Carl. Yeah. And I think that both of them are in the exact place that they should be. They both should be in prison for the rest of their lives and hopefully no parole board uh, releases either of them. And honestly, I don't think Carl really deserves a, a new trial. I don't see enough evidence there to you know, allow him to get a second chance. And even then I feel like another jury is going to find him guilty of the murders as well. So I don't think it's going to exactly help his case. I don't think he has enough there to say I'm completely innocent per se. Uh, I I think it's just such a a mess. And I mean, that's why I was unsure about the parole hearing this thing is because in some places that we read that it sounded like she was released, but I'm pretty sure Robin Murphy is still in prison awaiting her next parole hearing. But one of the reasons for Carl Drew, especially saying he needs a new trial and maintaining his innocence is that 
it's believed that the investigators of this case may have actually manipulated witnesses here, mishandled evidence to ensure that anybody that claimed they were a devil worshiper was punished and put in prison. Uh, because a lot of these investigators, I guess, are suspected of being devout Catholics. So obviously they would want to put anybody in a, uh, a devil cult into prison. And yeah, I mean, there is a possibility that there was some mishandling of the case here and they were, you know, kind of screwed because they were in this satanic cult. But at the end of the day, I think, you know, these two absolutely need to be punished for the three murders that they committed. But over the years, there's definitely been other rumors and claims of police corruption that resulted in legal entanglements. And even the town of Fall River has definitely had its own issues as well. But one detective who actually investigated the Fall River cult murders named Paul Carey has his theory about what he believes really happened and what he believes the cult was all about. So he said that he believes Robin Murphy was the true cult leader and that the murders were motivated not by ritual sacrifice, but by jealousy. He said, I still believe that Murphy was the real ringleader, not Carl. That Levesque was murdered because Murphy was also in love with her and became jealous when Levesque started seeing Drew. I believe Murphy and Marsden were present when Levesque was killed, and I think Robin killed Raposa because Raposa was in love with Andre. Robin admitted that her and Barbara had previously been lovers, and I believe Robin killed Karen because of the two previous murders. Karen was at the scene of those murders, and I believe Robin knew she was the weak link that would get them convicted. And I think that this detective might absolutely be on to exactly what was going on there, that maybe it wasn't you know about all about the ritualistic killings and all of that, but more about just jealousy between lovers, like Clearly, Robin seems like the type who would probably get jealous if, you know, Carl started stealing her her women. And yeah, maybe this is exactly what happened to them. I mean, we won't ever really know, but it's definitely one theory that's there. But disturbing rituals and devil worship didn't start or end with the Fall River cult or the Freetown State Forest. In the fall of 1978, a 15-year-old girl named Mary Aruda was kidnapped Two months later, she was found tied to a tree in the forest, dead from asphyxiation. A cross was also found nearby, and James Cater was convicted for her murder. But many believe he's innocent, and that Mary Lou may have been in fact sacrificed by the Fall River cult. The Freetown State Forest continued to be a hotspot for cult rituals for years after the Fall River cult. In 1988, a hunter found a hidden bunker and notified the police. And inside, they found animal carcasses and bones, a rusty knife, pieces of children's clothing, and a collection of dolls with gouged out eyes. Also around this time, a dozen calves were brought to the forest, tortured and mutilated. And perhaps most unsettling was the desecration of a small cemetery from the 1800s. A woman named Elizabeth Gregory, who was buried there in 1868, was pulled from her grave and stolen during the 1980s. And some people in Fall River believe that there is still an underground society of devil worshipers that still operate in secret, kidnapping, murdering, raping, and sacrificing animals and humans in the name of Satan. Man, what a wild story this is. I don't know if there's anybody out there that is from this area in Massachusetts. I'd be curious to know if you have even heard about this or if this is even still a thing that people are concerned about because 
yeah, there could absolutely still be some type of satanic activity going on out there, especially out there in the forest. It seems pretty clear there's something still going on, but can you imagine walking through any forest for that matter and just coming across like this beat up old shack and then you walk in and there's just like, there's dolls with no eyes and skulls and carcasses of animals laying in it. Like, would you stay and investigate or would you turn around and run? (laughs) I would definitely turn around and run. I mean, I don't want to fuck around with any of that. And, you know, it is kind of surprising how authorities haven't restricted the access to the forest. I mean, I get it's huge and everything and it can be hard to maybe monitor all the activity that's going on. 6,000 acres. That's pretty pretty big. Well, you got to think too, like there's probably tons of places in the U S where this kind of stuff is going on. Like, there's, there's so much national park lands. There's so much areas of, you know, places that are so remote that nobody goes by like that. You could easily do shit like this and nobody would ever find it. And I mean, I really do believe that there's probably a, a large number of cults out there that are operating in remote places and in, in forests and other, you know, areas where people don't go often and doing things exactly like, what Carl drew and Robin Murphy did with the fall river cult. I think that this is definitely not an isolated issue that there's probably far more out there that have yet to be discovered. And obviously, you know, there's probably a lot out there that have avoided detection, you know, good, good likelihood of that still going on. And I feel like the fall river cult definitely gave, you know, Satanists and Satanism a really bad reputation because like, like we were saying earlier, not all Satanists are bad. And, you know, yeah, I get that they may seem to worship the devil and everything, but this cult and the fact that they use torture and human sacrifices and all of that is just beyond like fucked up. And the whole case, yeah, super messy. How at the end, like the ad investigator was thinking that there could have been like a love triangle going on, which to me does maybe explain why these murders were so brutal and, you know, relentless. But, I mean, at the end of the day, there's Satanists out there today who would never kill somebody like that or torture. And, you know, so overall, I just feel like it it gave Satanism a bad reputation with this story. Yeah. And I mean, especially with this happening during the Satanic panic, like it's very possible that this was blown up and portrayed as, you know, these crazy ritualistic murders because of just the time period and how, you know, scared people were of anybody that claimed to worship the devil. Cause I mean, I get, you know, some of it is definitely ritualistic for sure. But, you know, at the end of the day, was it all in the name of Satan? Was it all in the name of evil or was it just a really messy cult that fell apart from the inside and, you know, they kind of took out each other. Like they knew that if, you know, one person gets out, they're going to expose everybody else. So, you know, they had to sort of take each other out in order to eliminate sort of, you know, all of the shit that they had done together. So I don't know. I really want to know what you think about this case because it's really still up in the air. I feel like, and hopefully, you know, Robin Murphy never gets released from prison because I really do think she is probably the, the mastermind here and definitely involved in the murders, if not the sole one who did them. I think Carl Drew's definitely guilty as well in, in a lot of aspects, but I do kind of wonder a bit, you know, how much did he really do? Uh, but at the end of the day, I think both deserve to be in prison, but 
definitely want to know what you think about this. Do you think it was the love triangle issue that led to the murders or was this all, you know, a satanic ritual? So definitely let us know, but we'll go ahead and wrap up today's episode there. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the lights out podcast and until next time lights out everybody.